All right, so uh, turning your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. We are in a series in Proverbs, and this is our third week. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 12. Uh, we're going to read these verses out loud together. Uh, if you are new to your Bible, just open your Bible right down the middle, and you will be near Proverbs. If you, uh, if you see Psalms, turn right. If you see, uh, you know, uh, a bunch of funny names that you can't pronounce, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, go left. Uh, if it helps you out, I'm, in page, I'm on page 636 in my Bible. Um, there are also some Bibles underneath the seats down the center aisle that you are welcome to take. And, you know, every Bible has a table of contents. And so don't be embarrassed, especially if you're new to Christianity, just checking out the church, uh, to turn to the front page, just like a normal book, and look for uh, the chapter that we're working in. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Let's read these out loud together. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path, straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits of all your produce. And then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pause to say thank you for the gathering of your church. We thank you for your word. We pray that it today would be light and life to us. God, that uh, as, the, as the psalmist says later, that um, it would be a, a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. God, it would direct us and guide us in, uh, in, this, in this world that we live in. Uh, Lord, we are, we are both um, saddened by the events of this week in our world and uh, at the same time hopeful that there's only one solution uh, to, to all the world's troubles, and that solution is you. So, Jesus, we honor you. We honor you with our, uh, with our time today. We honor you with our worship. We honor you uh, with our praise. And God, we honor you by being attentive to your spirit. Would you speak to us through your word uh, by your spirit today? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. <clears throat> uh, we're talking about wisdom, and we've been talking about wisdom for the last uh, few weeks. In fact, we're in a sermon series where we are trying to, you know, so uh, trying to gather ourselves around the wisdom that the Bible uh, suggests to us. And uh, as I look out into the world, it's easy to say that there's a huge demand for wisdom. And would you agree? I mean, is there a huge demand for wisdom? Um, there aren't a whole bunch of physical bookstores still left, but if you would uh, meander into Barnes & Noble or more than likely, uh, you know, open up your computer, go on Amazon.com and go into the book section, um, more than likely in the self-help section, you're going to happen upon all kinds of books and print media of various sorts that suggest or promise to teach us how to live a wise life. Here's some examples. Uh, this is from my own um, walking through uh, Barnes & Noble here a couple weeks ago and, uh, and looking on Amazon.com. One book con uh, contains an appealing argument. The key to exercising regularly, losing weight, being more productive, and achieving success is understanding how habits work. I mean, that sounds pretty interesting, right? This book promises to take you to the thrilling edge of scientific discoveries that explain why habits exist and how they can be changed. I mean, that sounds like a book that I would want to read. Here's another one. Another book says it offers a five-day jump start that uses the principles, the specific principles outlined in this book, um, in a very specific and directed way to get you a fresh start on the path to optimal wellness. I'm not really, I'm not actually sure what that book is suggesting to me, um, but I might actually read the cover, go to the table of contents, and see what it might have in store for me. 
Uh, one third book, if I told you the name of this book, you know it. Uh, it gives a step-by-step -step process that will help you navigate the terrain of your best lives so you can set a new life course. Um, these are all very popular books. They are, I mean, if you Google uh, Amazon, self-help, bestsellers, New York Times, number one um, books in the, the self-help category, these would all rise to the top. And, and if these aren't enough, all you ha simply have to do is uh, go get a magazine, look at audiobooks, uh, go on a podcast, and all these, these kinds of media, they teach us or they are suggesting they can teach us about friendships, how to lose weight, how to gain weight, how to look hot for the summer months, uh, how to improve really any and every area of your life that you can think of. And so what these books are all um, trying to give us is to, to suggest that they can give us wisdom for life. And that brings us to the biblical book of Proverbs. That really is what Proverbs is doing as well, except Proverbs isn't suggesting that it's going to do that from a, a secular worldly perspective. It's trying to give us wisdom that comes not from the world, but wisdom, divine wisdom that comes from God. The writer of this book is, is King Solomon, and Solomon tells us of his qualifications uh, in that he's the son of David, the king of Israel. When Solomon was a young man, he had newly been coronated. Uh, he goes and he's worshiping the Lord, and the Lord comes to him in a dream and offers to Solomon an opportunity to ask him for anything that he wanted, and he, it would be granted. And because of Solomon's, at that point, his righteous life, uh, uh, the Lord said, hey, ask anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon asked not for riches. He didn't ask for fame. He didn't ask for um, uh, peace around his enemies or even the defeat of his foes. He asked for wisdom. And the scriptures tell us in 1 Kings 3 and 4 that God gave that to him. God gave him wisdom. Solomon goes on to write about 3,000 Proverbs, of which we have a taste of them, <clears throat> a taste of them here. And, and so Solomon is writing this book after, as, after he has really uh, uh, pursued wisdom in every area of life, in the, in the animal world, in the plant world, in in humanity, in the science of the, of the stars and of the heavens, and he gives us really general wisdom in, in regards to how the world works. Not just general wisdom and how the world works, though. He gives us divine wisdom, wisdom that comes from God about his world. That's what the Proverbs uh, pretend to be. Proverbs are short, pithy sayings. They are shrunken down truth, really parables of truth that are meant to be memorable, portable, um, and that we can take anywhere with us as we ingest them and make them a part of our lives. Last week, we looked at chapter two, and chapter two offered to, to tell us what the value of wisdom was, but also to tell us that wisdom can guard us against uh, specific temptations that come in our life. In the case of chapter two, he talked about um, perverseness of speech and the adulterous woman. In chapter 3, really, this is a, a very positive chapter, and Solomon is giving us um, guidance about obtaining wisdom in every area of our life, be it at home, at work, as you were recreating, as you're relating with people. And in the particular text this morning, Solomon focuses on three things, uh, the path to wisdom, the rewards of wisdom, and lastly, he'll finish up by talking about the, the benefits of failure and how failure leads us to wisdom. And that really is the difference between uh, what the Bible is offering us and what we get when we peer into a self-help book. Most self-help book, help books give you advice about techniques to better yourself. It's telling you uh, if you want, if this is what you want, this is how you get it. And usually a self-help book is going to suggest that you not necessarily change yourself, but do things that changes your environment or your surroundings so that you get exactly what you want. And that, that's how Proverbs differ. The Proverbs isn't trying to uh, get you to change the world that exists around you. The proverb is trying to, to, to get you to see that you're the one that needs to be changed. You're the one that needs to be changed so that you are reflecting, your soul is reflecting um, uh, the reality of who God is, how he made his world, and uh, who he's calling you to be. He's calling you to 
himself. And so the text shows us a series of of, uh, exhortations. Really, these are imperatives. Solomon is writing to his son. So parents, think about um, the guidance that you would give to your sons and how sometimes you tell your, your children, do this, don't do that, and you say it, and, and you say, I mean, you're giving them commands because uh, you're, you've lived enough life, you've made enough, uh, you've had enough successes and failures to offer to your children uh, advice for them to live by. Solomon is doing this very same thing. He's exhorting his sons, really, with four practices. I call them habits. Habits that as you incorporate them into your life, they will over time lead you to become wise. And the first habit that Solomon commends to us is to take in Scripture. Verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart, uh, let your heart keep my commandments. Um, the first thing to note here is, is the familial language that Solomon is using. Um, Solomon, of course, is a, it's a dad writing to his sons, and, and he wants them to, um, to listen to his words, uh, firstly because there's a familial relationship already established there, but more importantly, Solomon knows that his wisdom isn't just his own wisdom of how he thinks things should go. He's giving them the, the very wisdom that God has already given to him. Um, And because this is God's wisdom through Solomon, we should receive this as God speaking to us. More so, you know, every once in a while, uh, really in every chapter as Solomon begins, the first nine chapters of Proverbs, he says this. He says, my son. My son. Think about how you address your children. He's addressing them as a father who loves, who cares for, and wants to provide for his children. And so we should receive these words as God calling us his adopted ones. He's, he's calling us his beloved children. He's speaking to us because he chose us. He's speaking to us because he loves us. And now he's mentoring us so that we can live Christ-empowered lives to the glory of God. This is Solomon's third lecture, the first lecture being in chapter one, the second lecture being in chapter two. Uh, there are actually two, le- uh, two lectures uh, in chapter 3, and we've divided the chapter up uh, like that. We'll look at the latter half of chapter 3 next week. And the first thing that Solomon's doing is he's commending his teaching and his commands. When he's saying, um, my son, don't forget my teaching, he's talking about whatever the completed book of Proverbs would have been, something very similar to uh, the, the manuscript that, ended, that ends up being the book of Proverbs that we, that we have. So he's not just saying, all right, these, these very, very first few words that I have for you, uh, pay attention to those. He's saying the whole corpus, I want you to pay attention to my wisdom. And I like to think that Solomon is, is giving um, counsel and exhortation to his sons in, in bite-sized chunks. You know how, those of you the parents, you know how your, your kids, after you talk to them, it's like, do this, do this, do this, don't do this. I mean, you're sort of lecturing them. And every once in a while, I mean, like their, their eyes will like roll up in the back of their head, and you can, you can tell they've checked out on you. I like to think that Solomon's doing this. I mean, people hadn't changed. His sons are no different than your, than your kids. Um, after you've talked for a little bit, you sound like Charlie, Brown, Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. So Solomon's giving his, his sons instructions in these little bite-sized bite-sized chunks so that they, they get it. They're, they're actually listening for the very first few minutes, and, and then he'll wait a couple days, and he'll give them more. That really is about as much as we can handle. And so he's giving, he's saying, um, pay attention to all of my teaching, all the book of Proverbs. But it's bigger than that. That, that word teaching uh, in the Hebrew is the, is the word Torah, which means all of God's law, the first five books of the Bible, the books that Moses wrote. And Solomon is urging Uh, So Solomon's urging us to take God's word and to remember it. But unfortunately, that's where the problem starts, isn't it? I mean, how many of you ever noticed that you can remember the minute details of a lot of things going on in your life, the things that you're interested in, but when it comes to uh, remembering scripture, you have a little problem? I mean, even if you don't admit it, most of us are like that. A person with cancer, doctors tell us, uh, is said to be able to remember the intricate details of the prognosis that the doctor is giving them. And so much so 
that they, they, they start to be able to regurgitate the, the exact medical lingo and the terminology of, of what's ailing them and what the doctor has prescribed that they have to go through in chemotherapy and all this stuff. Uh, but a lot of times people with lesser ailments have no idea what's wrong with them and they don't really care because it's not life-threatening. Some of us uh, can remember all kinds of sports stats. You can, I mean, you know every player on the roster. You know how many, how many balls they've hit, how many errors, how many home runs. I mean, you can just like go down the list. You can p- compare that player to players on the other team. Some of us memorize all kinds of technical jargon about our jobs, but you can't remember a lick of scripture. That's not a rebuke. I'm with you, too. Here's the thing. Technology in the age of electronics in our culture is affecting our attention spans. In other words, attention is not an amoral quality. I think as a culture, we have outsourced uh, our ability to remember. We don't need to remember anymore. We don't need our memories anymore because we've got smartphones, we got tablets, and anything that's important, I'm going to put it in there so that I can just whip it out whenever I need it. But here's what the path to wisdom is exhorting us. Solomon is saying it's surely better. He's saying more than that, it's wiser for us to remember some things. If you're a man in here and you have a a woman as a wife, then I would tell you it's important, probably wise for you to remember her birthday. Even if she says she doesn't care about her birthday, you'd be stupid not to remember your wife's birthday. Glenn, isn't that right? Glenn walked up to me and was like, hey, it's Wendy's birthday today. He remembered. If you're a spouse, you know, even if you care nothing about your anniversary, you should remember the day that you got married, the day that God commenced the unity between you two, because it's an important day in the life of of, of your family, okay? The, the backbone, the foundation of our, of our country is made up of families. God honors the family, and that's an important day in the life of, of your family. If you're a student, it would be important for you to remember when you got a test so you can be prepared for it. It would be important for you to remember when your paper's due so you won't get a grade dropped off of it. If you are an adult and you have a job, which means you probably have bills to go along with that, it would be important for you to remember when those bills are due so that your stuff won't get confiscated, right? Here's what God is saying to us. God is saying there's merit in us not just remembering all these little minute details about our lives. There's merit in us remembering his commands. And this is, this is not just um, God offering us nice little words and suggesting that we that we, you know, honor him by paying a little bit of attention to what he said to us. This is a gospel issue. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, you come to know who God is by hearing the, the, the good news of a God who loves you enough to die in your place for your sin. That's how, you, that's how you learn about Jesus. That's how you come into the faith. Most of us here have an attention span of about seven minutes. That means I've been going for like, I don't know how long, 10, 12 minutes. Some of you have paid attention and then you checked out and then you're just checking back in. I mean, that's how we are. This is a gospel issue. If, if the church can only pay attention to what God is saying for seven minutes, we got a real problem because our faith comes by hearing, the gospel is at stake, and so is our sense of attentiveness. And so Solomon says, my son, don't forget my teaching, but he doesn't stop there. He says, but let your heart keep my commandments. And so whenever the Bible talks about heart, it's not talking about the center of your emotions, that part that makes you feel good or happy or sad or that makes you cry. As, as Paul Tripp says, the, the heart is the central causal core of your personhood. It's the very thing at the core of you that causes your thoughts, that causes uh, your feelings, but also causes you to act the way that you act whenever you act how you act. Your heart is the essential you. It is your mind. It is your emotions. It is your will. And so Solomon is telling us, take the scriptures, ingest them, embed them into your life, 
almost like the scriptures should become the operating system for your life. That's what he's saying. Here's the second habit. He talks about God. Verse three. Let your let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Uh, the words steadfast love and faithfulness are, are always a pair in Scripture. In the Old Testament, every time we see these words, they always come together. And Solomon's readers, this, this, the, the, the Hebrews of this ancient Near Eastern time, would have known these words because God would have spoken them to them. They refer to the covenant relationship that God offers to his people. Exodus 34, 6, Moses has, God has given uh, Moses the, God has given the people of Israel the Ten Commandments, and then uh, he has proceeded to give them all of these laws. And then he calls, calls Moses and Joshua and 70 of the elders up onto Mount Sinai to give them more intricate instructions. He brings them uh, into this place where it seems like they're in a heavenly place. The, the, the ground is like sapphire, clear through. And then he tells Moses and Joshua, they come further up on the mountain and God gives the full law, writes on the Ten Commandments with his finger. And then God, out of the cloud, says this to Moses about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I mean, this is God talking about himself. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is this beautiful Hebrew word called hesed. And it means, this is my language, it means industrial strength love. It's like Teflon love. It's a love that's unconditional, it's loyal, it's good, it's gracious, and it doesn't give up. I like how Sally Lloyd-Jones in the the, God, uh, the Jesus story with Bible says, she says about this hesed, uh, steadfast love of God. It's God loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's the kind of love that God is offering to us in Scripture. But here's the important point. This is not just words that make us feel good about God. He's just not, not, not talking about, all right, so here's some good emotional words for you to, to think about love. This is God's character. God is describing himself to us, to his people. He's saying, he's saying, put this character on you. Bind these around your neck so that you develop them as qualities to live by. He says, write this on your heart. If you had a tablet right there on your heart, like write it on your heart. Internalize these as my commands for you. He's telling them, he's telling us to do more than just learn a set of principles or follow a set of techniques. Why? Because these will work for you the first few times you do them, but ultimately they'll fail you because we can't, I mean, we just not, I mean, think about all the steps that you do, even with physical exercise. You'll do it for a few weeks and then I, I just don't feel like doing it right now. I'll do this first two steps, but I'm not going to do that third step. We never change by learning five steps to wisdom or three steps to improving our lives. We need God's industrial strength, love, and faithfulness. And so Solomon is commending a familiar relationship with God. And he's saying, when you have it, it will begin to change your life. And the same qualities that we see in God himself are going to appear in your life. The third habit that God is in, uh, insisting that we should have, if we want to be wise, is trust. Trust. Uh, today's media, we are told that the way to improve ourselves is to put more confidence in who we are, to become our better selves, and to believe in ourselves to be better people. But Proverbs is giving us a different practice to, to, to lead to wisdom. Verse 3, actually verse 3 through 5, uh, absolutely, verse 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make, your, he'll make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. And turn away from evil. I mean, you guys recognize these words if you've never even read the Bible because they are some of the most popular scripture verses, definitely in all of Proverbs, probably in all of the Bible. We've heard these words before. But what are they saying? Firstly, Solomon is encouraging us to actually trust in the Lord. That word trust is important. Uh, one of my contemporary mentors, Ray Ortland, says this in his commentary. He says, trust means Throwing yourself down on your face. 
It's to lie down, spread eagle in complete reliance. It's to do a belly flop on God with all of your sin, all of your failure, all of your shame, all of your fears. He says we stake everything on the gospel of Jesus and the promises that he has for us in God. If God fails us, we're damned. This is Ray Orland talking. <laughs> if God comes through, we're saved forever. I mean, I love those. I love, I love what he's articulated there. Have you ever thought that, I mean, do you have courage enough to, to put all that you are, both good and bad, into, I mean, lock, stock, and barrel into who God is, to lay all that down at his feet and trust God to do with it what he will, to make you the person that he wants you to be? That's what, that's what Ray Orton is suggesting that we do here. The, verse, the, the focus is verse 5. Verse 5 is giving us a picture of leaning on something and it being a little wobbly. Ever done that? Like you're, like you might be stumbling a little bit and you reach out to grab something and you realize that what you're trying to grab is not as stable as you need it to be. And you realize at that moment, if I put any more weight on it, it's going to not only give way itself, it's going to cause me to stumble and fall and perhaps hurt myself. Well, what Solomon is saying here is that's a picture of, of you. That's you when you trust in yourself. He's like, don't don't trust in yourself because you're not as reliable as you think you are. Where should you put your trust? Put your trust in God because he can handle you. He's got the weight. His glory is is sturdy enough to support you in all that you are. Solomon is saying when we rely on ourselves and our ability to figure things out, we're putting weight on something that's incapable of bearing that kind of weight. And eventually, your weight is going to come crashing down on yourself. Later on in Proverbs, we learn that, the, uh, that we're worse than fools when we do this. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see people who are wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for fools than for them. He finishes this train of thought in verse 7, and, and really he's, he's providing a paradox. He says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And so Solomon is saying, if we're never wiser than when we recognize our own foolishness. But we're never more foolish than when we think we're wise. And so who are the wisest people that live on planet Earth? They're the people that don't believe their own height. They're the people who recognize their weaknesses and their limitations. They're the people who are deeply, continuously, and joyously repentant. They are the people who are dependent on God for wisdom, not in their own selves. In other words, they are the people who are trusting in the Lord. The, the fourth habit that Solomon suggests to us is in verse 9, and it's money. I've learned this as a pastor. If you want to make people nervous when you're in church, actually, you don't even have to be in church. It can be anywhere. You can be like eating lunch, like having some coffee. If you want to, pay, if you want to make people nervous, start talking about money. I, I mean, I have to be honest. If somebody else were preaching up here and I was sitting out there with you all and they started talking about money, I'd be a little, I mean, I'd be a little hesitant. Like, what, what is he going to say? Because, you know, so many people um, lead us astray in regards to our money. But more than that, Solomon knows that our money is very close to our heart. What does Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And that's just so true. And so, verse 9, he says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of, all of your produce. I'm going to start with a B line. Remember, Proverbs has an A line and a B line, and a B line clarifies the A line. The B line here is with your first fruits. Uh, all of your produce. It sounds funny without saying that. He said, basically, honor the Lord with our first fruits. The first fruits is a word that we don't use in our, in our culture today. Uh, it doesn't mean tithe. It means um, the, the, the first of what you have. If you uh, were an Israelite and you were going to honor God, then you would give him the, the first unblemished animal that, that broke the womb. You would, you would offer to God uh, the firstborn child that you had. It was a male Son, that's that's the idea of of first fruits, not the tithe, but the best portion. In a sense, in Genesis four, when in, in the story of Cain and Abel, 
it says that Cain, um, uh, Cain brought uh, God a, a, an offering from the, the fruit of the ground. Abel brought uh, the, the best portion of the animals, which means he brought a, a first fruit. He would have brought an animal that had been the first to open the womb. And God received Abel's offering as a better offering. And so here's what the, the wisdom of Proverbs is. Giving first fruits is symbolically giving your everything because our wallets is close to our heart. But our problem is, is that we, I mean, we know what our first fruit is and we don't want to give it away. In fact, even if we give a little bit of it away, we want to control it. We want to, we want to determine how much I give and when we give it. And Solomon is, is encouraging us Honor God with our wealth by giving a portion of your money, not when you're done paying your bills, but right off the top. And so here's the thing. I mean, there, there isn't a self-help book that you're going to find on Amazon.com or New York Times bestseller list or even um, in Barnes & Noble that's going to suggest that you do that. There's not going to be a self-help book. There, there's some that will commend to you charitable giving because it's good for the organizations of the world and all those who can't help themselves for us to contribute to that as, as people who are trying to be noble. But most of these books aren't going to suggest that, uh, that you would give away your money because that would not be wise, right? It's completely countercultural. But the Bible is countercultural. The life that God is offering to us and beckoning us to come into in relation to himself is countercultural and exactly what Jesus says about the kingdom. This is the theme that runs all the way throughout scripture. He says, give away what you have, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, which doesn't make sense to us. Why would I give of my best? And I mean, I'm just giving it away. But Jesus said, even to the, uh, the rich young man, he says, uh, the rich man, young, young man comes to Jesus and he says, how can I get eternal life? And Jesus tells him firstly, well, follow some commandments. And the man says, well, I've done all those. And Jesus says to him, give away all that you got. Give it all to the poor and come follow me. Guess what the rich young man does? He hangs his head low. He turns around and walks away from Jesus. Why? Because his wallet was tied to his heart. And he couldn't, he couldn't fathom giving away all that he had, his riches, even for a relationship with God himself. And unfortunately, many of us are like that as well. And this is why we need the Proverbs. You won't find a book outside of the Bible at Barnes and Noble on Amazon.com that tells you to live this way. The way to live well is not through a set of techniques that makes life into what you want it to be. Instead, it's a set of practices or what I call habits that brings your soul in line with the reality of who God is, how he's orchestrated his world, and, and the God that's calling you to himself to live, not as the world lives, but to live counterculturally. And so here it is. If you want to be wise, this is the path to wisdom. The way to live well is to embed your life in Scripture. It's to enter into a relationship with God so that his qualities become yours. It's to humbly repent before him, to not trust yourself, to give portions of your money away so that your money doesn't become an idol in your life, you won't find this path to wisdom anywhere else. It's right here in God's divine word for us. But it's ultimately the path that leads to wisdom. And it's a path that will not disappoint. But this passage doesn't just give us a path to wisdom. It also gives us some, some rewards. I don't know if you've noticed, I've actually skipped half the chapter. All right. And I've skipped half the chapter because this chapter is Solomon does something interesting here. He sort of divides it up. He, he tells us what our human um, obligation is. And then in the very next verse, he tells what God's divine commitment is as we as we meet God halfway. For example, verse one says that if we would simply embed God's word, just hide it in our heart, then God is going to give us in verse two life and peace. I mean, he goes down the line in all these in verse one and two, three and four is uh, uh, uh uh, there's an interchange that goes just like that. And so let's look at the rewards of wisdom. Again, verse two, uh, verse one promises, hey, don't forget my teaching, which means remember what God is saying. Um, ingest, digest his commands as, as part of your life. 
And verse 2 says, for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. What's, what's the, the wisdom of Proverbs offering to us as we obligate ourselves to God's word? It's saying that we would live a long and prosperous life. Now, to qualify this, a long and prosperous life doesn't mean you live forever. It's just basically saying when you're going to live a long, happy life, and when you die, you'll be buried on the land with your family, and you'll have the peace and respect of your neighbors. Verse 3 says that we're to begin a covenant, steadfast, loving relationship with God and make that a part of our life, and the reward of wisdom is that we would have favor with God and with other people. Verse 4, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and with man. As we do the wise thing of trusting in the Lord with all of our heart and not leaning on our own understanding, verse 6 promises that in all of our ways we would acknowledge God and he will make our crooked paths straight. He's going to give us a smooth path throughout our life. He's going to make the crooked places straight. Verse 7 promises that that we obligate ourselves not to be wise in our own eyes, but we would fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom that we would gain in verse 8, healing to our flesh, refreshment to our bones. Healing, health, and refreshment. Verse 9 promises that as we honor the Lord with the first fruits of of all of our wealth, verse 10, we're going to get nothing but our barns filled with plenty, our vats bursting with wine. Now, it'd be easy to think, all right, he's, pl- he's promising me wealth and, and riches there. Um, it, we would call it that in our culture, but really, uh, in the ancient Near East, wealth is not simply having a whole bunch of uh, a life of luxury. It's, it's having a family that surrounds you. It's having children to take over your land and over uh, whatever your, your life's work is when you die. It's food and sustenance and provision for your table. It's enough to sustain yourself. So that's what he's saying. It's a word picture. You're going to have more than enough is what God is promising. And so, I mean, why should we why should we expect rewards for wisdom as we obligate ourselves to do what God has says? I think there's a pattern in Scripture, and we see it here as Solomon is laying this out for his sons. God has structured his world so that foolish living usually results in bad things happening. And the opposite is also true. As we live or, or even lean towards the life of a wise person, then um, good things are going to happen to us. That's generally what's going to happen. As we acquire the skill of living wisely, good things are going to happen as opposed to bad things that would happen to a fool. But I would tell you, this is where most of us should, um, should begin to, to struggle. Because, I mean, how many of you know fools who live really well? I mean, you can just look at the world, look at social media, look at all those channels on your cable TV, and it's nothing but fool after fool after fool after fool who lives just like anti-God, away from God, and for whatever reason, they're being blessed to be on TV in front of us acting foolishly and somehow making a lot of money. But we also know people who seemingly live very wise lives that have nothing but problem after problem after problem that, I mean, that, that chases them in all their lives. And we don't, I mean, we have to look no further than Scripture to realize that this is general wisdom. It's, it's general wisdom for us, and it's not always going to uh, end up exactly how, uh, how it's suggested. There are exceptions. Think about Job. Job suffered in life after being one of the most honorable pe- uh, people on the planet, and he did it because God wanted to test him. Was it fair? It's what God wanted Job to, to experience. Uh, three weeks ago, as we were finishing up the Ten Commandments series, I talked about Psalm 73, uh, a man who saw uh, the wicked... Uh, prospering so much that he suffered in his faith because he saw the righteous suffering. And we look at that and say, I mean, that can't be fair. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 8, there's something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. Solomon ends up by saying, he says, this is meaningless. It's vanity. So when we look at wisdom literature as a whole, we recognize that while these proverbs are generally true, there are exceptions. It's not always going to end up being that, that as we do what God says, 
we're going to end up being, uh, being a happy person who lives a happy life. And I think what this tells us more than anything is life is complex. We live complex lives on a complex planet. But even this text acknowledges that life is not going to be just all blue skies and happy faces. Look what happens when we get to verse 11 and 12. I mean, I mean verse, verse 1 through 10, I mean, it's just like, all right, so God is saying, if, if I would just try to do the right thing, read his word, love him as my God, um, trust in him, uh, don't chase the wicked, but fear the Lord, that he's going to reward me with, with a wise life. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be set. But then we get to verse 11 and 12. And verse 11 and 12 reminds us that there's not just a benefit of staying on the path of wisdom. There's not just rewards of wisdom, but failure is going to come. But in that failure, God is also trying to make us wise. Verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So imagine this morning that I have a check for a million dollars made out to one of you. Your name is on it. I've already dated it. August 1st, 2016. But as a catch, I'm going to follow you for the next two weeks. I'm going to follow you when you wake up. I'm going to like, like staring you down in the middle of the night, watching you sleep, rolling over. I'm going to be able to peer into your dreams. I'm going to watch you when you wake up. I'm going to see you as you engage your kids, as you're driving on the road on the interstate, as you're at work, even as you're playing. And if you get it all right, you got a million dollars. But the minute that you raise your voice, the minute that you have a, uh, an insincere thought, the minute that you, uh, the minute that you um, scream at somebody on the interstate, the minute that you do anything wrong, that's it. You've lost a million dollars. I mean, what did you think? Well, you think like, well, poor me. But you're in good company because there's not a single person in this room, me included, that would get that million dollars because it's not in us. It's not in us to be that perfect. It's not in us to live that good of a life. It's not in us to be that wise. All of us would forfeit the million dollars because no one, nobody can measure up to that impossible standard. This is what the Bible is saying in regards to that. The message of the Bible is not, let me be careful here. The message of the Bible is not simply that here's a set of principles you need to follow. And if you do these you'll live. Is that generally true? This is, this is what verse 1 through 10 is telling us. Here's a set of principles that are generally true. If you follow them, you'll live a good life. But here's the other side. This is the message of the whole Bible. The message of the Bible is God has shown us how to live, and we have failed. Every one of us has failed. You see, we don't live wise lives. Our lives just don't go as well as Solomon is suggesting that they should go. We don't keep God's word consistently. We're, co- we're, we're not covenant keepers. We're covenant violators. And even when we get it right, we miss it half the time. But there's good news in this. And the good news is that God knows us. He knows this about us. And God has done something about it. Guess what he does? He sends Jesus. What we're reminded of here are, are basically two things in our text. They're not stated by word, but they're, they're here by implication. And the first is that we desperately need God's justice. God's justice is the sense that, um, that he's going to give everyone his due. Scripture says that will not, will not God judge the earth? God judges the earth because he's given all authority to Jesus there's a lot of injustices in our world. We, I mean, just look at this week, the week before that, the week before that, there's all kinds of injustices in our world. And if you, would, if you would believe it, if you would believe the media, you would think that life is just hopeless and, and, and all this bad stuff is not going to be uh, avenged. But the scriptures tell us that God is going to avenge. And if not in this life, he's going to do it in the life to come. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to have a sword coming down his throat. He's going to have a tattoo down his left, his, his thigh. I mean, if that ain't bad, what is? He's going to have an army in tow, and he's going to bring death and judgment to all those that have not bowed the knee to him. God is going to judge. Verse 11, God judges even us. 
It says, don't despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. When we fail God, he's going to reprove us. But the encouragement is God doesn't just ignore our sins or failures. He deals with them. But then there's something else better that happens. We desperately need God's judgment. The world needs it. God would be unjust not to judge the world because he's a holy, righteous God. But God also gives us mercy. And this is, this is what mercy is. Mercy is you not getting what you deserve. I mean, we need mercy every day, all day. And here's God's mercy. He says, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. God doesn't come at you as a man on a, on a vengeance streak. He comes to you as a father to a son who has the utmost care and concern for your life, for your heart. And he reproves you in that vein. And so God, in his mercy, he doesn't write us off when we fail. He treats us as sons. Look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 um, echoes the same passage here in Proverbs 3. I'm going to start at verse 5. My son, uh, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, he repro- uh, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, uh, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I mean, those are, are beautiful words to us. Failure and the resultant discipline trains us. It trains us for the fruit of righteousness. It trains us to be more like God. And can I add this? It trains us to live wise lives. Discipline, God's reproof, his challenge to our character trains us to live more wisely. And so the picture we have in the gospel is is the mercy and the justice. And I can add the, the wisdom of God. God meets us in his justice, in his mercy and in his wisdom at the cross. I want to read one more verse to you. This is a beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians 1. It's about wisdom. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. At the cross, the demands of God's justice were fully satisfied. And at the same time, God showed mercy and grace to everyone who sinned. And this incredibly is the wisdom of God. We don't understand it. We don't understand that how it can be wisdom that God would put Jesus on the cross in our place for our sin, but First Corinthians says it's folly to the natural eye, but for us, it's our salvation. This is the wisdom of God. And so let me conclude with this. When the Bible commends the path of wisdom to us, the end result, I mean, we can call it a prize, but more than that, it's, it's never simply the rewards that we're after that wisdom brings. It's, it's always the Lord himself. Proverbs 3 is offering us not just the feeling of being wise, of getting it right, of having stuff in our head for which we can navigate life right. Wisdom always leads us to the Lord. If you're searching for the Lord, at the end of the rainbow is going to be wisdom. If you're searching for wisdom, at the end of the rainbow is going to be God himself. And so when the, when the wise man exhorts us that we should live lives of, of life and peace, he's offering us, he's committing to us peace with the Lord. When the wise man offers us 
a relationship, uh, uh, a relationship with the Lord. He's saying it's a covenant relationship with God himself. When he says that we'll have favor and success with man, it's not just that. It's favor and success with the Lord. When he says that he'll make our crooked path straight, he's promising a straight path to the Lord. But he also cautions us at the end of this, in this, end of this text that even in suffering in this life, God disciplines us because he loves us as sons, because he knows it's going to yield wisdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, would that you would make us wise, um, that we would not just have information that, um, that fills our head with stuff, but more than that, uh, God, may at the end of our search for wisdom, we run into a wise God who deals wisely with us, really who deals with us in mercy and in justice. Lord, uh, help us to be people who, who value your word so much that we would mine it out like someone looking for gold. And when we get to the, the place where the gold is, that we would rec- recognize that your word is life and light to us. And standing right beside it is, is you yourself. God, we would help us to know that the wisdom we seek really is, is you. It's Jesus. And that having found you, Lord God, we would, uh, we would do everything to keep you. Lord, commend to us wisdom, wisdom from your word, that we might know how to navigate this, uh, this crazy world that we live in. We pray that in your name. Amen.